As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome, everybody, to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. Here with me to talk a lot about the U.S. men's national team is my friend and yours. It's Mr. Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe. Hello, Taylor. There's there's no time for convoluted introductions because it is not just you and me today on this Tuesday episode. We are joined uh, by two gentlemen. The first has been here before. Making a return appearance from the Scuffed Podcast is Mr. Adam Bells. Adam, good to have you back. Good to be back, Taylor and Joe. And I believe, I believe speaking with us for the first time, or at least me in podcast form, is Greg Velasquez. Greg, it's great to finally get to chat. <laughs> How are you doing, man? Yeah, this is my very first uh, TSS cap. Is it okay? I wasn't. I wasn't sure if, if Daryl had the uh, the foresight and wisdom to, to to chat with you, but I know there was. We talked about this last time. Bells was on that. I think Bells and Daryl had done like three or four shows together, but we had never been on the show together. And I wanted to make sure that there was no friendly rivalry. And now we have Greg here, so we can all just be best friends. And that's the plan. We're all going to end up best friends or uh, at each other's throats by the end of this very long recording process. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I've already I've already worked on uh, figuring out who my enemy is going to be from the Skype podcast. <laughs> I can't say it yet, but I'm working on it, guys. That's good. All right. I'm glad you're, that's uh, an evolving process. Uh, this is going to be part one of a crossover series. Part two will be available in the Scuffed feed. We have not talked about when each episode is being released. Probably should have gotten to that. But who needs details when you've got a bunch of questions to answer, which we do. Uh, they're about the USMNT past and present, present about Burhalter, about CONCACAF, a bunch of other topics. First, I wanted to start on a... Slightly tricky uh, note, because it is the thing that really resonated, at least for me, from uh, y'all's episodes during World Cup qualifying. It seemed like a thing that you all were sort of grappling with. Joe and I, I think, definitely did. It's the idea that coming into qualifying, Greg Berhalter was, at least in my opinion, very much the right coach. He had a plan. He had a system. It seemed like everybody was on board. And yet there was a period when, uh, I think, like midway through the Honduras game that the U.S. was going to come away from qualifying with two points from three games. And that feels like this type of situation that leads to a coach traditionally getting fired. And so this kind of like uh, 
difference of a coach who I thought was very, very good in getting the right results and getting the right decisions, and then two points from three games. Obviously, they turned around to get the five, but that left, I think, Joe and I a little bit confused and a little bit uncertain about how things stood. Is that also an issue that you all were dealing with? Greg? <laughs> I mean, it absolutely is. And and you're you're exactly right that he got the results, right? We were coming off this uh, just an absolute party of a summer with two trophies and, and you know, in a results business, that's about as good as you can do, uh, even though it was also widely acknowledged that some of the play on the field wasn't great. It was it was easy to look past that and say, OK, but he can get the results. He can set it up. The team has this uh, that grit and fight that everyone has been missing for so long and we can grit and fight our way to results. And I think I basically started to feel that, too, that we can uh, we can have the grit and fight when we need it. And I think for a lot of us, at least for myself, uh, you also look at the actual talent on paper of the team and feel like, okay, when we don't have, and just sort of assume that the talent might paper over <laughs> any, any other weaknesses that might crop up over qualifying. And, and Bells, for you, I, I enjoyed your idea that like we need to be a team that makes other teams give up. I think, Greg, you, you were on board with this idea as well. And just sort of being relentless and consistent our attack- in our attacking approach. When you all went back and watched the Honduras game or any of the games from qualifying, Bells, were there things that you sort of felt better about on the rewatch or after knowing that we did get the five points that maybe at the time you were more concerned about? I mean, I felt good about the second half of that Honduras game while I was watching it the first time. So I didn't need the rewatch to feel, to, to be mm-hmm. encouraged by that. But, but yeah, I mean, you know, soccer's a confusing game and I am kind of confused by what's going on with the national team right now. I mean, we'll get into a lot of it, but, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, you know, we got that goal from Anthony Robinson of a, a kind of a, a really well taken goal, which you would, I don't know if I would have put money on Anthony Robinson doing with that with his right foot before the game started yeah and that sort of uh you know that that along with a few other things sort of turned the tides i don't i i don't know i don't know what to think about it all honestly i'm um i I feel lukewarm after the first window i guess everybody does yeah and i think that is like pretty much specifically the reason why I'm happy we're doing this. Because Joe and I talk a lot. We talk a lot about the U.S. men's national team, but other leagues as well. And I think we we were sort of on the same page in a lot of different ways. So we were excited. Uh, Joe, I'll speak for you on that one. We were excited uh, to talk with you all to kind of hash out some ideas, figure out what's working, what isn't working, what we're excited about for the next window. And yeah, as I said earlier, answer a ton of questions. Uh, Joe, have I have I fairly encapsulated how you're feeling or anything else you wanted to add, broadly speaking, about like where we are with the national team that we maybe didn't get to the last time we talked about them? I'll add just a general sentiment of concern. I think mm-hmm. that's, that's the position I'm in right now. The three World Cup qualifiers that we've seen from this particular group of players under Greg Berhalter were not convincing. There were good moments in each game. There were also more bad moments than good, I would say. So yeah, I mean, I think I'm I think I'm where everyone else is in that concern pool. Also confusion. Bell's mentioned that. I definitely echo that sentiment as well. Um it's a weird spot we're in right now. And to be honest, I don't know that we're gonna figure figure things out before we get this next round of qualifiers, right? I'm not sure we're going to have an epiphany that's gonna help us solve this team. Soccer is confusing and I don't know I don't know that really anything other than more defined and more accurate and more effective performances on the field are really going to change that fact. 
Then, then let's go this route before we get to the listener questions. For all three of you, uh, Greg, we'll start with you. Like, what are what is a thing or a couple things that you feel like you definitively know about this team or how Burhalter wants to play or about the players that we've called in so far? Because I think w- what I tend to prefer is a, like a system that allows us to feel like we know this, we know this, we know this. Maybe there's a little bit of uncertainty about who's going to play here or there. And I think we were building towards that. And after this round of qualifying. I have, I think, more questions than answers. And so I guess I kind of want to get on the the firmest foundation possible by asking you, what do you sort of have answers to in your perspective? Uh, so what I feel like is a given for Greg Berhalter's team so far uh, is that he's going to try to possess the ball. And this this happens whether we are successful or not. He's going to try to possess the ball. Um, and he's going to set up his possession essentially with uh, with five players across the front. Uh, is, is sort of what I take as a given. So there are a lot of other things that change and how you can get into that shape can change, but he's always going to sort of build into that shape. And then the big questions are going to be whether or not with the personnel that we put there and what they're asked to do, are they clear on their roles and are they able to execute in a way that whether you want to use his language and disorganize the opponent, really, it's just, are they going to be able to create scoring opportunities? Uh, but I, I think, like, I, I feel confident that we will continue to see that. And, and I say, I focus on the possession, uh, even because he's obviously added the transition pieces and the pressing pieces. Those are a little bit more contingent on whether your opponent will let you do that. Uh, whereas, you know, the opponent can force you to beat, to break them down by possession. So that's what I feel like is, is the big question is, will he actually be able to prepare the team to do it? Uh, or is it going to be another sort of frustrating three game window? We're just diving right into the the big questions, Greg, <laughs> Greg. For you, like, is there a player that you think excels more than others for this team when you're trying to break down a team uh, who are bunkered, who are being very defensive? That could be individually, that could be with quick passing or quick movement. But I'm wondering if you have sort of a bunker defense. If you're Greg Burhalter, who do you trust the most to create a goal scoring opportunity? That's that's a tough one. Right. Uh, See, this is the like, problem. <laughs> we very quickly get into uncertain territory <laughs> because because it has to be such a collective thing, right? You, yeah. You have yeah. you have Christian Pulisic, who is I, I would say you know arguably uh, our best attacker, and he is capable of beating a man out of nothing. So right away you have a guy who can at least unbalance the defense right in the moment. And then the question is, what happens after that first domino falls, and are we prepared as a unit to take advantage of that to exploit it? So I'd say Pulisic is a guy who you can who you can rely on to to at least create those moments, even if even if nothing else of your shape is doing it. Um, but you you can't just go straight from beating one guy to scoring a goal. You need those intermediate steps, and that's what we're missing. And so there is going to have to be some level of collective, uh, you know, coordination to create those those chances outside of you know winning a corner kick or a free kick and scoring off a set piece. And Greg, you mentioning the the need for it to be a collective, it reminds me of, I believe it's that El Salvador game, the first World Cup qualifier, where Gio Reyna's out there and he is creating things in the final third and Brendan Aronson is kind of moving off of him. But there's sequences that I know you guys talked about and, and I think I've gone back through and watched as well. There's sequences where Gio Reyna has the ball and he's looking for Brendan Aronson to make the run, but the run is a half step late. And that, I think, works to your example of, yeah, you can have someone, whether it's Christian Pulisic or Gio Reyna, those are probably the two main guys. You can have someone that does the initial action, but rarely, if ever, does that one player move all the way towards goal and create the chance for themselves unless they're like a Lionel Messi caliber player. So it really does need to be a group project here. 
All right, so our, our, our givens are truths so that uh, Berhalter is going to try to possess the ball uh, with a setup of a five across the front. Uh, Pulisic is going to try to beat people 1v1, and Joe loves Gio Reyna. Uh, Bells, <laughs> what are the truths that you feel uh, comfortable saying, the things that you're most confident in? And I'm assuming they all relate to DeAndre Yedlin should definitely be your starting right back. I said that mostly just to annoy you. <laughs> no, I, I want to say one thing about like a player who can unbalance an uh, organized defense. is oh, al- I think it's also Sergio Dest, you know, uh, from the fullback position uh, i'm not i'm not breaking any new ground here but i think when we face that low block and he's he's playing hopefully right back for the u.s he is a player who can combine and and pick somebody apart from a from a deep position he's another one um my the givens i the givens i have uh about the national team are not so much related to like what burhalter thinks but like for me this is just sort of hard won over the last five years and watching watching us flame out in Cuba is I'm really interested in us having a strong ball winning midfield. That seems to be really important. I'm not sure it's important to Burhalter. It seems to be getting more important to him. Um, and that's, that's really important. I think another given, you know, a recent given is that we, we now have a good left back, you know, and Anthony Robinson, at least somebody who's claimed the position, uh, there, I guess there's a few others, but I won't go on and on. All right. Well, so we got two there, and I would agree with both of those. Joe, any any for you? I think it's telling, or, or maybe this is telling on myself, or maybe it's telling on the team that we're seeing, but I don't have a lot of other tactical givens mm-hmm. to toss out here, which is slightly concerning to me. Um, but as far as players go, you mentioned Giorena there, Taylor. He is the thing I am most confident about in this team, right? He is he's the best player in this group in my mind right now and, and maybe I'm that's pretty been sure true. you mentioned Giorena, but yeah, sure. <laughs> well, I, I mentioned then you mentioned him, so I'm just sandwiching it and you're in the middle. You're the you're the Oreo cream and I'm the, the outsides. Not sponsored. Um but Giorena is the thing I'm most confident about in this team. Tyler Adams is right up there as well, but his health is always a question. His his yeah. his fitness is always a question. Those two players are the players that I'm most confident about, but Giorena specifically in the attack when he's fit just not a given right now either he he is the player that i think has the that is best suited to carry the load for this team and after those first three qualifiers i think we're looking at a team that needs their load carried at times all right so there, there's five there i would add uh, at least for me i think that uh, matt turner is the starting goalkeeper uh, i would add that one that's the thing that has definitely evolved over time but is something that i feel comfortable with i mean that said zach Steffen can can still challenge certainly but i think it's turner's to lose uh, and i think it's a truth that we probably need center backs in the team i'm not sure who they would be uh, i'm not sure who my starting pair would be it's weird to me that at this point, I feel like I trust Miles Robinson the most of any of our, of our available center backs. And another thing that I wasn't certain I would be saying maybe six months ago, but here we are. Yeah, Robinson's high up on my list of, of trusted players. And maybe we'll get to this later. Maybe we won't. Yeah. But Robinson is, I mean, we've we've known the issues about John Brooks, right? So none of these should really surprise us. But at times, the lack of effort and some of the defensive struggles that were on display in those really important moments in the first in the first World Cup qualifying window, it just emphasizes how important Miles Robinson is to this team. He's not a perfect player in any respect. He has a lot of deficiencies, just as really all of these players do. But he's he's hugely important. And I think Miles Robinson, along with Matt Turner, are probably the two best individual player developments of the summer. Not in that their games have developed, but in that Greg Berhalter seems to rate them, and that's an encouraging development. Uh, a less encouraging development was obviously what happened with Weston McKinney, and I've got questions about him, but I think so too do the listeners. We're going to get to some of those, I think, in part two. Uh, but for now, we're going to take a break, and then we will be back to answer uh, some of those questions up front. 
This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back. Our first listener question, or I guess Twitter question for this one, comes from the MLS, a, a big one to start off with. Uh, <laughs> does the idea that previous CONCACAF World Cup qualifying experience uh, is valuable still hold any weight with you? This past window, World Cup qualifying veterans such as John Brooks and DeAndre Yedlin struggled while newbies like Miles uh, Turner and Aronson excelled. Bells, what do you make of that question? I mean, on its face, it's hard to, it's hard to say, well, experience means nothing when it comes to these World Cup qualifiers, but it sure doesn't seem to mean that much right now. We need players who are locked in and focused and don't lose Alfonso Davies six minutes after we score a goal or don't like not track a runner on that very same play into the box after he's standing on your shoulder. So no, I don't think it is as valuable. It doesn't hold much weight to me right now. I mean, I don't want to throw like a 17 year old into a, a world cup qualifier. Well, maybe I do considering <laughs> that Ricardo Pepe was the scored the game winner and he's 18, but yeah, it doesn't hold much weight. So bells is going with a U 17s only policy. <laughs> uh, Joe, right. what, what about you? How are you feeling about our veterans in CONCACAF? I agree with, with Bells' perspective on this. Just because you've played in a World Cup qualifier before doesn't mean that you're the best option or, or that you're the best suited player to do that again. That said, there could be some intangibles here, and I'm guessing there are, that we just really can't fully know, right? I, I don't know what impact DeAndre Yedlin is having in the locker room, right? It could be it could be DeAndre Yedlin's presence, and I don't think this is true, but it could be DeAndre Yedlin's presence that is the thing propelling Miles Robinson and Matt Turner and Brendan Aronson to excel on the field at, at, at times, at least. I don't know that all those players excelled all the time, but I think there could be this behind-the-scenes aspect that we're really not privy to that has a larger impact on this group than the on-field aspect. So I don't think that that previous World Cup qualifying experience means that you're a, a gimme, a guaranteed player for that lineup to excel in the next World Cup qualifying cycle. But I do think there's something to the idea of bringing in some players with experience in these situations to prepare the younger players who haven't been in those situations. Yedlin, Yedlin bakes, a, bakes a mean batch of chocolate chip cookies, and those yeah. are really important. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a hugely important skill for soccer, yeah. Joe, I'll take the I'll take the uh, converse side too. In that, yet yeah, there might be some value in that, but I also don't think that you would ever at this point want to rule out a player strictly because they don't have a, a lot of experience. Because you know what we've definitely seen is Ricardo Pepe in his very first in his debut with the senior team at any level on a road uh, match in Concacaf delivers right, and then you have Anthony Robinson who has uh, went into that Honduras game with at what he played 30 minutes against El Salvador and he delivers. So you have these players who you can definitely now say new players can deliver in this environment. It, it, it doesn't have to be a, like a, something we need to be afraid of 
to bring a new face in. It might just be, all right, now how do you prepare them to succeed? Do you, what do you need to put around them? And if you think, if you think a Yedlin or a Brooks or whatever is needed to, uh, to sort of support them, you know, build your roster that way for sure. I think, I think if we go back through and if we traced all these players' paths back to their birth, I bet we could connect them all somehow to Tim Ream. <laughs> and he just might be the, the answer to this experience question. He could, I mean, without Tim Ream, maybe this team doesn't even exist. You know, that, that's, that's something we at least have to consider. He is he is the Iron Man. He is the glue. Uh, I think I, I grow I go with uh, Greg on that one. That I think we want in these types of games and these sorts of moments, we want players who have been there before. Because I think the expectation was that the players who've been there before, who have the experience, will know how to deliver. Deliver. And Joe, this is the thing you and I talked about a lot. Was that. All three of these games, really, we didn't have anybody sort of dictating the way it was going to go. We didn't have a person take charge or take it by the scruff of the neck, as as we often say. And that was the thing that I found so confusing, is that it wasn't really the veterans taking that lead, making things happen. It seemed to be the newcomers, the players with less experience. And so I think basically where I am is I don't much care if they have a ton of experience and World Cup qualifying or not. If they're going to go in and back themselves and try to make things happen and keep fighting and keep grinding that's sort of the key thing I want from this team. I, I think it's it's really difficult to overstate just how desperate that uh, that scene was when we came out after the half against Honduras. Yep. Like that was really a dark time <laughs> for the national, men's national team. <laughs> yep. And and we had like like Greg said, we had Anthony Robinson and Ricardo Pepe, two complete newbies to the process, rescue us. So so we will have. Other faces uh, when we get our, our next squad announced for the next round of qualifying, including some players who were not there, ideally or theoretically because they were dealing with their own club situation, trying to get a move, some successfully, some unsuccessfully. That leads to our next question. Uh, Joe, we'll go to you for this one. Uh, from Nick Flick, if you could improve a player in the pool's club situation or just give them a move to a new club, who would it be and where would you move them? Okay, can I cheat and do two? Is that cool? I have three, so sure. Okay, sweet. That that makes me feel better. Um, so first, I've got Brian Reynolds. Uh, if he sniffs the field under Jose Mourinho, I will be shocked. He he will. He'll get minutes at some point, but that doesn't feel like the best situation. And so I've got a plan to get him away from Roma. Uh, Brian Reynolds moving to Stuttgart in the Bundesliga. They already have a couple of right wing backs because they play a back three under uh, American manager Pellegrino Matarazzo. They have a couple of right wing backs already, and and they're not half bad. But still, even with that competition, I think Brian Reynolds has a better chance of fitting there than he does at Roma, and I'd like to see him in that system. So that's that's player one. I think that would help him climb up the depth chart a little bit at right back. And player two, Josh Sargent. He's playing on the wing again, guys, and, and Norwich is real bad. If we could move him to MLS, NYCFC, Colorado, Sporting Kansas City, all teams that I think he could really make an impact for. NYCFC have a couple of really talented forwards already, but it looks like at least one of them might be moving on soon in Tati Castellano. So I'd love to see Sergeant play under Ronnie Dyler, play under Robin Fraser, play under Peter Vermees in MLS. I think that would give him a chance to be a nine, which is just something that we haven't seen him do enough at club level, and that could actually you know, help him improve at some of those basic nine things that he seems to be lacking. So that's Josh Sargent uh, moved to not the wing and Brian Reynolds moved to Stuttgart, which, Joe, I have to say makes me very happy because I had a player moving to Stuttgart and I thought, I, I think Joe is going to move a player in a similar <laughs> position to Stuttgart and that is how that went down. So I instead have Reggie Cannon moving to Eintracht Frankfurt, uh, currently 15th in the Bundesliga. They have Danny DaCosta, they have Eric Durham. 
but I, I think both of them 28 or 29 years old. You bring in Reggie Cannon, maybe he's an understudy, but maybe he gets games here and there, and I think it gives him a fresh start in the Bundesliga, which has worked historically for Americans, so why not? I've got uh, one or two more, but I wanted to turn it over to Greg. So I'm actually, I'm moving Zach Steffen. I feel like I really want to see if he can actually get minutes to the team and help them win soccer games because, uh, he moved, <laughs> he moved to Man City. And, uh, when he does play for them, I don't know that you can really say that he's the reason they win soccer games. Man City win a lot of soccer games, uh, regardless of, uh, who is in net for them. And then, uh, he had his loan spell at Dusseldorf, um, for a year in the Bundesliga and they promptly got relegated. He played half the season and, uh, got injured, didn't play the second half of the season. So I just, I actually want to see the guy compete at a high level and see if he can actually, uh, keep the ball out of the net. I've got severe goldfish brain. Uh, we say that often and I will say it again today because I kind of forgot about the Dusseldorf loan and I also forget how good he was for that, for that team when he was playing. And, uh, I think that was when we were in Germany and Lutz Fannenstiel, uh, who was then the director at Dusseldorf was talking about how important he was and how they wanted to bring over more Americans because he'd been so good and fit in so seamlessly. So I'm with you that it would be good to get him into a place where he's playing consistent minutes. And also, yes, we probably want a goalkeeper who can, uh, show that he's been there and show that he doesn't buckle under pressure. So yeah, Zach Steph getting a move i'm good with that bells have you got any other players on the move i think uh i think jonathan gomez the louisville city left back the young one so i'm playing very much to type here a prospect i would like to see (laughs) i would like to see gomez uh you know finalize this uh, rumored move to spain supposedly he's going to real sociedad um but in general i don't love this question because i think your club situation is sort of a function of who you are as a player. It's not entirely that, but it is a lot that. And I mean, generally speaking, the club situations of our players are quite good. Like Matthew Hoppy at Mallorca, Wes McKinney at Juventus. Now that's not going great right now, but that's not because of the club situation necessarily. Uh, Conrad De La Fuente at Marseille. If you had told me, you know, a couple of years ago that these players would be at these clubs and actually getting minutes, I would not have believed you. So... Um, generally I think pining for players to move to greener pastures is, uh, you know, it's not my favorite thing to do. Mm-hmm. Is it better than to go, kind of go the way Joe went and focus more on players who are in clubs, but maybe could use a positional move or just a different role? Cause I do think he's right that Josh Sargent moving to the wing, has done that for Schalke, wasn't as inspiring or as impressive, and I don't know if that's helped him sort of further his trajectory, further his ability. So are, are, would you prefer more that, or is it really just like, nope, whatever they're doing is fine because <laughs> we, we've kind of made leaps and bounds uh, progress? Well, well, Sargent's on the wing uh, because he hasn't won the striker job at, mm-hmm. at Norwich, a very a very bad club. He hasn't been convincing for the U.S. either. And, um, you know, I mean, he looks like he looked good over the weekend for for Norwich, I thought. Uh, as a sort of target winger, but again, not goal dangerous. So like at some point he needs to start becoming goal dangerous and score goals. Uh, or he's not a, I don't, or he's not a viable, you know, option at striker for the, for the men's national team. Uh, Brian Reynolds, I, I, I'm, I'm not trying to be, you know, difficult here, but like, sure he could go to Stuttgart. He's an, I'm not, but I'm not even ready to clamor for him to leave Roma. He seems like he understands what the situation is, that he, what he has to do. He's like, he seems to be grateful for the opportunity to learn how to defend in Italy. And, you know, obviously he's intimidated by the Mourinho situation, but I'm not sure. 
I'm not sure he would look great at Stuttgart right now. He like needs to learn how to play at this level. And I think he, like, like Joe said earlier, I think he'll get some, some chances this fall. So I'm not even sure I want him to move, you know? So maybe, so maybe it's not that like, it's fine that Sargent is in that position. It might just be that Sargent being in the position or, or Reynolds just tells you where they stand. So it just tells you Sargent isn't necessarily a good enough striker to take over a spot at Norwich. And he, that might mean that he's not a good enough striker to be our, uh, default number nine for the national team. That's Greg, we're, we're going to jump then to, uh, since you went th- that route, let's go to uh, Gabe Casper, <laughs> Greg, who asked, is Pepe the number one striker for the U.S. national team? Because this feels like where we're already going with the conversation about Sargent. Greg, who do you have starting for the U.S. in that next World Cup qualifier? Uh, so I definitely have Pepe, and, and it's because of how fickle that number nine spot is for the national team. And uh, I don't I, I don't necessarily expect Pepe to replicate what he did uh, against Honduras. I, I, I really do not think that will happen. And I'm trying to prepare myself and, and to hopefully prepare some other people uh, to watch Pepe struggle the same way we've seen other strikers struggle for the national team. Like he, it, it wouldn't be uh, a surprise at all if he has a game just like PFOC had against Canada. Like that could definitely happen and it wouldn't be shocking to me at all. But, but he did, he did the job in the one time he's been asked. So you give him the chance to do the job again in my mind. Hundred percent, yeah. Bell's is on board with that one, Joe. What about you? <laughs> I I think I've been swayed by Greg's reasoning. It, it, this is this is a really tricky one for me. I don't think any of the players have really separated themselves from the pack because yeah, yeah. Pepe's had that strong performance, but it's one performance. And ultimately, Greg, like you're saying, I think you you ride the hot hand until it's not hot anymore. I don't know why you really want your hand to be hot, but still. I, I think Pepe is probably that one right now, but it's close for me. Zarda is, is second, and I've got PFOC, and then Sargent's probably the guy left off for me right now, to be honest. Joe, if you don't know why you want your hand to be heating up, uh, I suggest you go play NBA Jam from the mid-90s. You're right. Uh, You're right. So that, le- like, that, that does speak to the issue of Ricardo Pepe scores a goal and now he's our starting number nine because the other players who've, who've had that opportunity have unimpressed or not been as impressive as needed. I think of Jossie Zardes, there's Josh Sargent, there's Daryl DK, Ricardo Pepe, Matthew Hoppe. I don't think has necessarily gotten the spot or the chance at that number nine. Are there other players that you all, uh, anybody, would like to see given an opportunity to be that central striker? Uh, Peacock, obviously, in that conversation as well. But I think that is one of the big question marks for me, and I'm not even sure how I evaluate like who it should be going forward because I don't know if we have the time to develop the sample size like from what we already have to know, yep, okay, this is definitely the guy. He's got consistency over five and six games. I don't know if we have that luxury, so I'm not sure who it should be. So I'm turning it over to you all to answer the difficult question. I, I just think it's got to be a, sort of an, a window-to-window competition, sort of an mm-hmm. ongoing competition. Pepe, that goal that Pepe scored against Honduras was a big time goal. That was a great headed goal. I know you guys, you guys talked about it at length on your podcast. Uh, that's, that's huge for me. And, um, we'll, we'll see, you know, like, like Greg said, maybe he won't look that good in the next window and then somebody else will get a chance, but Pepe's got it right now. And, um, and I think PFOC, you know, PFOC's probably second, although, you know, that goal he scored against your club, Taylor, Manchester United uh-huh. is, is, was not a repeatable, not a repeatable goal scoring move. You know, it was a gift from, uh, Jesse Lingard. So I don't know. I don't know. I yeah. think it's just Pepe and then we'll see. Noted U.S. national team fan Jesse Lingard, who just wants to make sure that PFOC stays in that conversation <laughs> for the number nine. Cause I really do struggle with who it should be aside from Ricardo Pepe. Like I think 
if pressed, I would say Giassi's Artes right now, which yeah. is definitely not where I thought I would be a couple years ago. But so far, he's been the one who seems most comfortable in Burhalter's system and has scored a couple goals. Uh, is definitely still frustrating. But I listened to Burhalter's interview with Bobby Warshaw, his most recent one, and he talked about how for the first game, they only had, I think, two full days of training before that game with everybody in camp. And I think that's where we go to the idea of Berhalter wants his guys because he needs people who are familiar enough with the kind of baseline system that they can roughly execute what's being asked of them and then at the same time adapt and improvise. And I think Zardes has proven he can do that. But I think right now with Pepe scoring that goal and and seeming to have that that confidence and that self-belief and that just ability to grind, I think I, I have Pepe number one for sure. So those are my two uh, main striking options, but I do have Pepe as my number nine. Any any other thoughts on that one? Can I say one more thing? Yeah, uh, you mentioned Hoppy earlier and he I think mm-hmm. he did he did play as a striker for like a little bit of that that debut for Mallorca. And he scored a goal that was disallowed because it was like a foot offside. So he's one to I think keep watching. You know, he was awfully bright for the US on the wing and and is very clear that, that he does not think that's his position. He was mad at Greg Berhalter for for uh, playing him there, he told Greg Berhalter that. <laughs> so, like, um, you know, he's he's uh, he's one to keep in mind. I think. Do you all have like any concerns about that? Because I really, I think I was right. Like, I played for a team where you had to have predominantly like black shoes. Your shirt had to be tucked in. You pack your own bag. It was very regimented and disciplined. And and a large part of that was you are mildly afraid of your coaches. So. The idea of having the self-belief to argue back as a teenager, I'm not sure I would have ever gone for. Like I was, I played for the team that if you ask if you can play, you're going to have to sit even longer. It was, it was a punitive system. But for me then to see Hoppy come in and sort of have those, that, that clash with Burhalter, which gets resolved off, off the field, but it's still, I wasn't quite sure how I felt about that one because I still have the, frustrations with Gio Reyna when he's throwing the hands up and being a little bit agitated. I think I've come around to him doing it less so hoppy. What about you all? I think the camaraderie that Berhalter's built within this group, mm-hmm. or at least I-, I felt very strongly about this before the last window, and I think I still do, but the Weston McKinney thing throws a bit of a wrench into this. Setting that aside, though, the camaraderie and the culture that Berhalter seems to have built, I think is the best thing that he's done in his tenure. And I, I count bringing in dual nationals as part of that because I think it's a byproduct of the culture that he's building. So when there's a player that comes in and maybe Matthew Hoppy just is this rogue guy, and I think Waki would, would certainly say that's the case. Maybe he's this rogue guy that you know doesn't care a whole lot about that culture. I, I feel like it's more that Berhalter's built this relationship with his players, that even if there is a player speaking out, or even if there is a player who's causing problems, that he's good enough at managing those relationships where they're not really going to be problems long term. That's That's where I sit on the whole Hoppy thing, at least. And there's a, there's a time and a place for it too, right? There's a time and a place to have those conversations with your coach. And some coaches will be, you know, more willing to have that conversation and the tone of that conversation can be different from coach to coach. And, and maybe Hoppy's just got a good read on Burhalter and what kind of back and forth they can have about this kind of thing and when they can have it. Uh, you know, the, the little, the little, uh, exchange they had when he got subbed out, uh, of a game that they're almost, that almost is like the, um, I guess right on the cusp of being an acceptable time to have that little uh, tantrum yeah. mm-hmm. um, as long as it doesn't like spill way over. Uh, so it was handled there. And so if there's other things that are happening uh, during camps, as long as they're sort of being done appropriately and both sides are, are, you know, respectful of each other, then I feel like it's, it's a nice little character bit about Matthew Hoppy. 
the thing about Hoppy saying he was mad at Berhalter comes from an interview with uh, CBS Sports, I think, or no, with uh, Football Americas with Se- uh, Sebi Salazar, and I he said it in a very good natured way. You know, yeah. it wasn't like uh, it wasn't like he was bashing Berhalter when he said that. And he had the uh, the Berhalter shirt, I think, afterwards with the so Berhalter funny. glasses right. on. So, so. Funny. So, you know, they, they've made amends. And I do think I hadn't really thought about the kind of parallel to Weston McKinney. And I'm guessing if you're Greg Berhalter, a player who doesn't want to be subbed off or is frustrated about something that's happening in the game, that probably makes a lot more sense than a player b- breaking protocol and uh, causing off-field problems. So, yeah, I think if Berhalter is maybe dealing with one player who's not behaving according to plan, it's probably Weston McKinney. All right. So now, see, I feel better. I feel better about these things. But, this is why we're doing But still, kids, kids these days. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. my lawn and whatnot. <laughs> yeah, Joe. Ah, gross. <laughs> uh, Joe, uh, we'll throw to you for this one then. Uh, from Andrew Johnson, 23-year-old Miguel Berry has more goals and assists for the crew in his 300-ish minutes than Giassi Zardes does all season. Should Greg call him in for Costa Rica instead? I'm going to say, should he just call him in for the Costa Rica game? Uh, either way, the answer is no. I liked the, the extreme nature of the original question. <laughs> no, right? I mean... Miguel Berry, quick background, 24 years old, right-footed, scored, I believe, five goals in MLS this year. Jossie Zardes has four. Some of the goals that Berry's scoring, I believe, came when Jossie Zardes was off of the Gold Cup. So it's not it's not an easy comparison here, necessarily. Berry is not someone who I think is good enough to jump over Jossie Zardes in the depth chart or, or to really even be on the depth chart at all. Right now, he's got good size. He's somewhat athletic, doesn't have top-end speed. I was asking uh, you know, Jordan Angeli about some of this stuff as well. And, and you know, he's a good player, right? He's been bright for this team this year when the crew have desperately needed goals. But he's not in that conversation realistically right now. I'd put Jesus Ferreira over him in that discussion. They're very different players. But we can build out this nine depth chart without going down far enough to find Miguel Berry, right? I, I don't think that move needs to be made right now. Uh, Joe taking issue with Andrew Johnson calling him 23-year-old Miguel Berry. Joe, I do appreciate that. Oh, shoot, uh, Bells, yeah. Greg, any thoughts on uh, Miguel Berry? Well, I was just going to say, if we're going to really go hot hand for the MLS striker, <laughs> then it's CJ Sapong, right? Yes. CJ. <laughs> wow. Because uh, Jazzy's numbers are, are down a little bit this season. So for, for anyone who was using sort of just his goal-scoring rate or his production as as sort of that in – uh, which I don't think there are that many people. I think it's it's obviously sort of uh, his at this point. He's got this incumbency familiarity with Berhalter, with what Berhalter asks. This trust uh, that's going to go a lot farther than uh, purely bottom line production. So you think Berhalter's not just looking at box scores and then calling in players <laughs> based on that? Whoever scored the most goals in the month of September gets called in for October. That's how it works. Berhalter loves Berhalter loves the MLS Team of the Week tweets that come out. Yeah. <laughs> On that note, we'll take one more break and we'll be back with some more questions. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. 
This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Welcome back uh, to all listeners and to Joe and to Bells, but mostly to Greg, because Greg, this question is for you uh, to start at least uh, from Denzera, uh, who I think is uh, one of y'all's uh, loyal listeners. What are your top three ideas for changes to make to global football rule changes like around overtime, uh, competition structure changes, governance, whatever it is, what would make it better? <laughs> all right. Well, I'm going I'm going with the penalty kick. Uh, I'm only going to do one because I feel like you don't need to hear three just from me. But uh, for me, you know, this expected goals revolution that we've kind of lived through, uh, I think, shows more than anything how overvalued penalty kicks are. Uh, But I don't want to get rid of them entirely. I actually like that they're given for fouls in the box. And I actually want them to be called tighter because I feel like the tighter you call those in the box, the fewer risks defenders are allowed to take. And you'll have less rugby style scrums in the box on set pieces. You'll have more uh, defenders getting out of the way of attackers it, rather than risking fouling them. So I actually want more penalties called on fouls, and I want to eliminate penalty kicks for handballs, which seem super arbitrary and impossible to protect yourself from uh, and are totally game-changing, seemingly unearned. So for like unintentional handballs, would you have it be an indirect kick in the box? Absolutely, because the more indirect kicks in the box we can create, the better the game of soccer is. <laughs> I like that you started this by saying that you wanted to sort of remove factors that lead to scrums, and now you're advocating for indirect free kicks in the box, which feels like the definition of a scrum. <laughs> <laughs> They're the most exciting moment in a, in a game oh, of soccer, sure. in part because they happen so rarely. Uh, but yeah, if it's not like a Luis Suarez rule, like yeah. just give it an indirect kick in the box. If it's so obvious... Uh, sure, give them the penalty kick. But otherwise, tons of indirect kicks and then more freedom of movement for attackers, in my mind, is great for the game. What about moving the penalty marker back a little bit? How much would that affect um, the XG? Because what is it, like a 0.75 XG shot when you take a penalty? Something like that? Yeah, and, and so one of the things we're, we've learned is that even even the shots that we almost all consider like gimmies are like 0.4 in, in the run of play. So there just aren't gimmies the way we tend to think of them as sitters. Uh, and penalty kicks rule everything in that in that regard. So I, I don't know. I still want to have it be a severe punishment because, again, I want to discourage defenders from taking risks to foul players. I want them to have to defend with more restrictions uh, to let the skill players run free. Uh, so I don't want to, I don't want to give the defenders an easy out where they're doing that calculation in their head and they're like, oh, I'd rather foul a guy and make him score from 18 yards instead of 12. What about Greg, if, if we kind of, uh, had a combination here of a deliberate handball is a, is a standard penalty 12 yards out. An unintentional handball is from the top of the box. So 18 and then a reckless foul, a deliberate foul in the box is from the six yard line and just really make it a gimme. Let's go that route. <laughs> Yeah, the other thing is you're gonna run because yeah, you'll run into Pierce who don't want to add marks to the field either. So you gotta you gotta have it on exactly. existing marks. <laughs> yes, yes, it's all about that. That one line has to be exactly right. We do then have to add a secondary arc, I think, if we are going to take him from the 18. Now we're overcomplicating things. Uh, let's instead go to Bells. Bells, what about you? What would you like to change? I I I think soccer's perfect the way it is. I <laughs> I don't. No, honestly, like Bells I don't. doesn't want anybody to move, <laughs> and he doesn't want to change anything. It's no, all fine. I, I'm swayed by what Greg said, but like it also sounds starts to sound complicated, and um, 
you know, I can barely sort out my own life, let alone the, the laws of the game. So I'm going to just pass it on to you and Joe. <laughs> I got uh, one. Joe, I got one. Yeah. yeah. Um, yellow card accumulation is bad in most yeah. situations. I feel it's bad. Uh, in a lot of tournaments, you can get a yellow card in one round and then the next round. And usually they'll reset before the final. So you can't, you know, immediately be done if you get a yellow card. I, I mean, it's just too complicated, right? And it doesn't need to really affect the game from one round to the next, I would argue, in a knockout-style tournament. I don't like it. it. It's unnecessary. It hurts the game. It takes away the best players from the field. Not a big fan. Doing world, doing a yellow card accumulation in something like this round-robin Ocho-style tournament is is fine. It's it's not still my favorite thing, but I can understand that more when you're not moving from one round to then eliminating half the teams and then playing another extremely important knockout game. But yeah, I'm not a fan of yellow card accumulation in most situations, so I'm I'm pretty much going to get rid of that entirely. Yellow cards for everybody, you know? <laughs> Is there any sort of punishment if you get like five and five games? Yeah, I mean, I like the I like the way that a lot of leagues structure it, but that's because it's over a really extended period of time, right? In MLS, you have 34 games and there are yellow card accumulation problems that come up in the in the regular season. I don't really have a huge issue with those. I just start to feel like I'm being cheated out of seeing good players play in these, you know, once every two year or four year tournaments when when yellow card accumulation starts to pop up in those style competitions. All right. All right. I'm in for that. What about if we change the process by which the World Cup is awarded? Because I haven't really loved uh, I didn't really love the host nation in the last one and not really excited about the next one. And by all accounts, there are many, many stories going back many, many years of it being just down to, if not outright bribes, then a lot of things behind the scenes. And like there's the the story that always sticks out to me is when they were uh, awarding the 2018 bid before the 2022 bid, uh, England were involved. And then I think the stories that came out afterwards were that because Prince William was as part of the bid committee, they knew a royal would not accept a bribe. I'm not sure if that's true, but that was their argument. And so then it was like we knew England were never going to get it because they wouldn't accept a bribe. And I feel like if there are those types of open secrets about the process, it's maybe not quite as uh, efficient or effective as it could be. I don't think we should open up to like a fan vote or anything like that, because I think that means Atlanta United will end up hosting the World (laughs) Uh Cup. Uh, But I do would very much like for there to be some reform in how the host is determined. Yeah, I mean, I would as well. I just I'm skeptical that that's even possible. Right. I don't maybe this says more about human nature than anything else. I don't I don't know how you would fix this. You would have to drastically over overhaul how the decision-making process is done and almost take the human element out of it, which feels impossible. I, I'm at a loss for how you go about doing this, but Taylor, I like the idea at the very least. Well, Joe, you're the dictator of Porto, so maybe we'll just make you the dictator of uh, host nations. No, we'll just have it in Porto. It's gonna be. We're just going to have it in Porto. Oh, oh, perfect. Yeah. Porto well, and well, Phoenix off and on. Yeah. FIFA, FIFA love a draw. Why not just have a draw? You, you pass your technical <laughs> inspection, so you're, you're eligible, put your name in the hat, and we get, a, we get another draw at a FIFA headquarters for, uh, for who hosts. Oh, and I'm sure there will be no tomfoolery at all. <laughs> perfect. <laughs> um, I also, uh, we played this in like college intramurals, and it still is one of my favorite things, that the idea of going to overtime, you have to take a player off every five minutes. I know everybody's going to cramp and get injured and it's going to end with like 2v2, but that would in and of itself be really, really fun to watch. And it was fun to play. And so uh, if if we're going pie in the sky, I would have overtime, you lose a player every five minutes. I'm also kind of on board for the idea of the game being 60 minutes long, but it stops whenever the ball goes out of bounds because I think that would 
make it maybe longer in terms of the broadcast, but I think also cuts down on some of the, the time-wasting and the cockacaffery and all that good stuff. So those were a few of mine. Any responses to those fairly ridiculous ideas or any other ideas uh, to mention before we move on? I was just going well, to go ahead, Greg. The the last thing I want to do is cut down on Conca Caffrey. I feel like that is an excellent <laughs> element of the game that I enjoy. Uh, so definitely don't want that to go away. Would you like it to go the opposite way then? That like you get to bring in aspects of your confederation to the World Cup so that like a CONCACAF nation is more allowed to do CONCACAF things and time waste <laughs> and just be very difficult. Like Luis Suarez, if he were coming from CONCACAF, maybe only gets a yellow card for that handball. That sort of uh, rule change. I, I don't know who's going to be in charge of, of those permissions, but uh, but sure, throw those in there, too. Well, we already made Joe in charge of host nation, so we'll give it to Bells. Bells, you're in charge of uh, of that determination from now on. I'll delegate it to Jordan Body, the <laughs> the, um, the the manager of our Discord. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> uh, all right, let's see what else we've got. We've got a few uh, more questions to get through in part one. Let's go with a big one from uh, Scott Solari. And Greg, we'll come to you for this one. Uh, why does the U.S. team look more cohesive uh, in terms of the MLS players without McKenney, Dest, and Geo? Does lack of time playing together factor into how disjointed they look, or is Greg putting them in bad positions? Well, I, I guess what I would would challenge here is when we've ever looked cohesive. Yeah. Like, I, don't, I don't know that there's ever been a grouping that has looked cohesive, certainly not on the ball. I think we have at times looked very cohesive uh, against the ball. But I think that has been the case with a lot of different personnel groupings, um, mainly against Mexico, who are intent on keeping the ball. So I guess I guess I'm not really sure. It's, it's really just a matter of uh, we're still waiting for that, for everything to click for any personnel group. To look cohesive, you could you could say I guess the second half of Honduras we looked uh, at least coherent and it was running in transition. But even then, it was still kind of choppy. Uh, even on our goal sequences, things are uh, like a half beat off. Uh, but we managed to you know salvage it and turn it into goals. Yeah, and you made you made the point about the lack of cohesiveness uh, in your in the Honduras review again, uh, Greg. You were talking about how this felt sort of like a Klinsman coaching performance. And and I think that really did hit the nail on the head for me as to why I was so uncomfortable is that at least with Burhalter, the, the, there's been a sort of observable idea that they are trying to do. And sometimes it doesn't work, like building out of the back against Mexico, or sometimes it works okay, but not great, like Jackson Ewell's long diagonals. And then other times it works much better. But I think in this round of qualifying and in Maybe the Canada game especially, it just seemed like there were a lack of ideas and a lack of cohesion. But I think you're also right that we haven't seen a, a string of performances where it seemed like everybody knew exactly what they were doing and knew exactly how to execute. It's always been a bit experiment, experimental. And I'm not sure if that's the worst thing right now, but I know that I would like it to be more cohesive. So, Greg or anyone else, do you all have ideas about how it could be? <laughs> I mean, this is, this is the million dollar question, right? Or yeah. however much Greg Berhalter gets paid. It's it's that dollar question. How do you get this group to look less disjointed or to look mm-hmm. jointed? That's definitely not the right <laughs> word, but you get the idea, right? It should be. I don't. It should be the right word. I don't know how to go about that. A good way to start, though, to get to the second half of of this question from Scott, kind of is is playing players in better spots, right? I think from the start of this World Cup qualifying campaign, to borrow scuff terminology, Brother got a little too cute. I, I talked about it on the show, and I talked about it in the article I wrote for The Athletic. The left side that the U.S. ran out in that first game really 
really didn't make a lot of sense to me against El Salvador was Conrad as the left winger, Dest as the left back, and Brendan Aronson as the left-sided number eight. And Aronson, I don't think, fits very well at that eight spot at all. And Conrad and Dest have have very similar, if not almost identical, skill sets. And so I I guess there's a way that that could have played out that it did work, and Aronson provided the perfect amount of verticality, and he was moving off the ball. That didn't happen. And I guess there's a reality in which Conrad and Dest could have been combining and interchanging and making players look silly on El Salvador's right side but that certainly didn't happen and it felt more unlikely than it was ever likely to happen. So, I mean, you have that game and then you have the, the initial lineup against uh, Honduras in the final game that didn't seem to make sense at all and put James Sands in a really tough spot, put Kellen Acosta in a tough spot, Sargent in a tough spot. And I know there's injuries that factor in here. I know there's there's rotations in the September window might be the trickiest in terms of player availability. So I sympathize with Berhalter in that regard. But a good place to start in terms of trying to get a cohesive performance from these players is by putting players in spots that make sense. And I don't think we've seen enough of that in World Cup qualifying so far. I really enjoy the idea of cuteness or maybe getting too cute. Uh, Bells, Greg, what would be examples for you all of when you're watching the U.S. and you're just like, oh, there it is. We're getting cute again. Is it immediately uh, given away when you look at the lineup and somebody's like Tyler Adams is playing right back for reasons? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's definitely the lineup in the in the personality they're called into camp. Uh, which again, we're moving away from that, that camp, at least the initial 26 man announcement, you know, a perfectly legitimate roster to, to field in, in some World Cup qualifying games. Uh, but yeah, then it was, then we managed to get into the lineups and got a little bit off the beaten path there. Uh, and, and in that Honduras game, throwing Adams out on the right side and even again, throwing Sargent at right wing, uh, a position he hasn't played for the U.S. national team before. Um, certainly didn't seem like it was, uh, uh, something we had been building towards for any length of time. It very much felt like uh, ad hoc and like, <laughs> I don't know if it was backs against the wall, but we def- I, f- I feel like we put our backs against the wall all by ourselves. <laughs> yeah, I don't think, you know, we I don't know that we've gotten a really good, like convincing explanation for why we did that. The three at the back at Honduras and like from Berhalter. And you know that's not coaches don't always give ex- explanations for that stuff, but but his it feels very post facto like what he says. He says, "Oh well, Tyler Adams played as a wide player for RB Leipzig a, a lot of last season, and so I felt like he would be comfortable there." Well, there's got to be some more to it than that, and I I don't know. I, my my suspicion is that it's just some galaxy brain stuff. Like he's got he's got some like specific thing in mind that he never really talks about after the press conference. I mean after the game. And, you know, that specific thing that he has in mind doesn't, doesn't come off and it ends up like kind of making everybody confused. And I, you know, not a fan, not a fan of that. And I don't think it's, it's, it's not easy to understand. I will say to Scott Solari's question, you know, I don't know that McKenney is a player who makes cohesiveness happen on the, in general. So that's a, I think that's a fair criticism of McKenney. He's sort of a chaos merchant. He's not like a, you know, he's not like a Spanish midfielder who's going to make everything tick. So um, just to be, just to not completely reject the question, I think there's something there with McKenney. Destin Geo, I haven't, you know, they're, I, they're players who have every opportunity of being cohesive if put in the right positions and uh, playing in a team that has a plan that makes sense to the players. What is the least, Bells, for you, what is the least cute 
lineup and or like maybe midfield lineup and overall formation. We have a lot more questions along these lines later on, and I think in your episode as well. But I'm, I'm wondering, since you'll be hosting that one, maybe you won't be talking as much there. Maybe you will, but uh, just in case you're not, who would you sort of trust as that sort of midfield three to be the least cute and the most effective simultaneously? Well, yeah, that's a good that's a good question, and I think it ties to cohesiveness. I think we will look more cohesive if we are exerting more control in the midfield. And like the, you know, we'll just have more of the ball and we'll be able, we'll be more dominant in the game. So I think it's the least cute is Adams, McKenney and, uh, Eunice Musa in the midfield. And then just, just let them run, let them win the ball, um, let them find people's feet and, and hopefully the talent of our, uh, our, of our front three, particularly our wingers will rule the day. There, that the combination of Musa and McKinney, which is mine as well, like there's an element of like energetic chaos to that. But that if they're both kind of playing for that goal of creating an imbalance or creating uncertainty, like that uncertainty can itself be cohesive if they're both trying to do it and both doing it intentionally. And I do like that sort of dynamism from those two with Tyler Adams behind them. So, yeah, I'm good with that midfield three. Uh, Greg, Joe, what about y'all? I like that trio, and that's my first choice trio as well. There are issues, though, right? And there are things there that concern me. We saw in the first half against Honduras, Kelna Costa and James Sands playing in a two. And these are very different situations. But one of the, the things that stood out to me from those two players is just the lack of forward passing that they put out. And, and Kelna Costa had a number of nice passes kind of from the left side, a left half space up to the forward line. So we did have good moments. But I, th- I think for as many good moments as he had, there were moments where he was too slow to turn, too slow to get on the ball and, and get it on the half turn and drive forward and then pick a pass. And Sands didn't have a hugely productive game in that double pivot either. And and I, I worry about similar things happening with Adams and McKenney and Musa, none of which I would argue are really plus forward passers. They're, they're, Musa especially is a plus ball progressor. He loves to get on the ball in deep areas and drive it forward on the dribble and then lay it off. But I have concerns about this team's ability to possess the ball and really build through midfield with those three players. I don't really think there are players I would rather have in those spots that would give a lot more offensive output that would result in a higher level of offensive output. But I do have concerns nonetheless. Long, long rambly point aside, that's my three as well. Can I respond to that? No. Go ahead, Greg. Yeah, no, no go, yeah. Greg, you go first. You were about to say <laughs> I'll something. Allow I'll allow it. I'll allow it. Bell, you have to respond first because I'm gonna I'm gonna take it like in a on a whole other uh place to build off of it. So you go, Bells. Um I was just I was just thinking that uh I actually forgot what I was gonna say, so go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Excellent content. So so my thing is uh I, I'm totally fine with those three. I think, you know, uh, on my little spreadsheet, I think I have those as the three starters. Uh, I'm, I'm saying I think I definitely do. I know what my my little <laughs> personal lineup is. Um, but I I also still think that there are any number of of permutations that can function for the U.S. national team. I don't think it has to be those three, or we just can't do it. Um, so I th- I still think the larger issue for cohesiveness uh, and Greg Berhalter I think touched on this after this qualifying window is still just like our rhythm. It's our, it's our passing. It's our speed of passing. And, and what I'm going to kind of say here is I don't, this, this isn't going to be like a magic fix. I don't think. Uh, but I still think that what we look like is a team that doesn't trust the pass. Um, and what I mean by that is it kind of manifests in a couple of different ways. Uh, against El Salvador, we had players who were absolutely technical enough to complete passes that were open and they were missing them. So I'm thinking in the midfield, McKenney might miss Brendan Aronson, even though Aronson's open. 
uh, and he just the pass would be off. And it just looked like guys who are trying to do too much with the ball uh, with with just a single pass. So McKenny's open, but or, I'm sorry, Aronson's open. But McKenny misses him, and it's almost always because we're trying to lead the guy an extra two yards. If it were just a, a technical mistake then we'd miss him in either direction. Some passes would be behind him. Some passes would be ahead of him. But we seem to always miss guys ahead of them. We were always leading them into a tackle. Uh, and that feels like it's because, oh, if I can pass it to him here, that's great. But if I can get it to him two yards farther upfield, that's even better. And we're trying to do too much on any given pass. And in the Canada game, it manifests slightly differently. It's we're always trying to look for a home run pass. So we weren't under any pressure against Canada. We had 70% of the ball. We'd move it to a guy who, who's not under any pressure. So every time he would look up and he'd want to hit the home run pass and he'd slow things down. And when the home pass was not, it's like looking for downfield wide receivers. If you're a quarterback, you're looking for that home run ball. When it's not open, we would check down and hit it to another guy. And that guy would be under no pressure. So he'd get the ball and he'd look up and everything would slow down. And he, you know, he wouldn't have anybody open downfield. So he'd check down to the next guy who's wide open. And we would just always pass around the outside looking for a home run, but never really understanding that just simple quick passes will drag these defenders out of position. And that's how you're going to eventually break them down. So it just feels like a team right now that doesn't trust uh, the value of those quick passes and that rhythm of passing. And and for me, that's what we need to get past. And I do think a lot of that is a Burhalter issue. It's his job to communicate that to the team, mm-hmm. to get them playing that way. And because we have the talent to do it. I think the over like overhitting the forward passes and then also looking for the sort of home run passes are one and the same or at least part and parcel of the same thing, which is trying to kind of play forward and be direct. And I think Berhalter talked a little bit about how that was like a, a thing that the players too often look to do uh, in this last camp. So, Greg, then if you're talking about quick passes, uh, I'm assuming that then is partnered with quick movement and a lot more interchanging of position. Is that the sort of approach you'd like to see from them as opposed to kind of playing it down the wing for somebody to run onto and then hopefully we play a ball in? That can still be an approach here and there, but on a broader level, a more consistent level, would you rather see just position swapping a center midfielder goes wide, a wide midfielder goes central, a fullback moves central on occasion, and we kind of have just different triangles and combinations all over the pitch? That's exactly what I'm looking for. And that's why I, even, even though the McKenney Musa Adams midfield might not have, you know, an elite forward passing player, it, I think it's three guys who want the soccer ball. Yep. And I think that's the big thing. I think that's what drives the movement is I want the ball. I'm either moving for it. Uh, if I don't get it, I'm clearing out and somebody else will naturally come in and take the space if I've obviously cleared it out. And I felt like we didn't have a lot of that against Canada. So even though we had the ball a lot, no one's making that decisive movement early. Uh, that then keys the next three movements for the players around him. So I feel like my hope is that uh, Burhalter can instill that in more players uh, through preparation and that we get players in that midfield who absolutely just want the soccer ball at their feet. I don't think that uh, applies to Brendan Aronson when he's playing as a central midfielder. And I also don't necessarily think it's Kellen Acosta's game, which is one of the reasons I think he's more effective as a six because you can't really hide as a six. You're the first pass in the buildup almost all the time. So you're always going to be sort of available. But when you move him to the eight, it's more about movement and rotations. Uh, and I think he starts to disappear a little bit. I was, I remember what I was going to say. I, I don't, I don't have much optimism that we are going to put together a cohesive attack before the, you know, before the end of qualifying. And I, I mean, maybe we can get into some of like some of the other reasons for that besides Berhalter's deficiencies. But, um, so I don't think, I just don't see us like, playing beautiful triangles all over the field, even though we do have a lot of talent. it For some reason, it doesn't seem 
likely to me. And I, I mean, I'm happy to be persuaded otherwise, but it doesn't seem likely. So that, so then what, like, what are our alternatives? Well, let's just try to win the midfield. Let's yeah. try to like win the midfield for a while and see how that goes. You know, what, what do you mean when you say win the midfield? Just win second balls, you know, be like a, mm. be a proper football man. Win this, <laughs> win second balls, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. hold on to the ball when you get it. Keep yeah. it, you know, not lose it. Don't lose it. I mean, I think Eunice is really good at that. I think Weston's okay at it. And, um, yeah, that's what you, I mean, I mean by you answer, the midfield. Yeah. You, yeah. Cause, cause I think for me, like where I get confused there is like, there's like winning it in terms of, yeah, fighting for every loose ball and, and just not letting anybody have time or be comfortable on the ball centrally. And then there's the win by possessing and keeping the ball and moving it. But I think that does end up going with Greg's sort of explanation of the check down and pass back. And so I'm with you then, Bells. Just wanted to clarify, but I'm with you that, yeah, I like the idea of a midfield that's going to scrap and fight. And I think Musa and McKinney also make a lot of sense to me in terms of the style of play and also like just the willingness to try stuff. And I think you put the two of them in there together, you're going to get some slaloming runs. You're going to get some, maybe some overhit one twos or some passes that don't quite come off. But I think there will be a level of unpredictability there that has been lacking. And that can be a positive if you're playing against a team that are trying to be disciplined and bunkered and make sure every run is tracked. If a player is doing one thing, one sequence, but a different thing, the next, and that's a part of the game plan, as opposed to an unintended byproduct, then I think I'm feeling good about the U S because I think it does just comes back to me for, to the point that I, I brought up that you guys brought up on your show, just the idea that this needs to be a team that fights and, and keeps going and grinds the other team down and never gives up. And I think in the past, that's just been work ethic and the U.S. just being fitter and running and fighting and believing in themselves and the American dream and whatever. And I think this team has that capability, but also has the technical side of things in a way that other teams haven't that – you could marry those two and make a really exciting, fun team that can be inconsistent, but still like almost consistent in the inconsistency, but in a positive way. That made a lot of sense and wasn't at all well, nonsense. I'll leave it to you all to parse that. That's a good that's a good description of Wes McKinney. It's just kind of a roll of the dice when he gets on the ball. Like he could get he could play a bad one too, or he could yeah. he could play a, a beautiful through ball in behind for somebody. It's like you never know what he's gonna do. So I do I do put I do want to push back a little bit on the idea that he's not a forward passer of the ball. He has done that. Um you know, with not not consistently every time he gets on the ball, obviously, but he's he's capable of it. And he'll he'll be able to hit those passes in those moments of transition where you know Eunice Musa wins the ball, it falls to McKenney, and all of a sudden there's a scramble, and he does have he has the wherewithal to like see you know Tim Weah streaking in from the right side, and you know hit him with the perfect pass, and we'll score a goal, and we'll win the game. So, so my challenge here, Bells, is because I don't, I don't actually think that that's the problem with our team. I think that's what we saw all of our success in this window. It was a uh, transition in the Canada game with Brendan Aronson, who's an excellent transition player. And we got out and we got to run and we score a goal. And then against Honduras, for some reason, they just left themselves wide open in the second half for us to transition over and over uh, on their cheap turnovers. Uh, or even if they weren't cheap, I don't want to, I don't want to take away from Mark McKenzie bodying a guy and taking the ball away from him. That was a great turnover, uh, for our second goal, but. Uh, what I'd say here is the, the big challenge is the Canada game because winning the ball wasn't an issue. We had the ball. You know, we didn't have to win the midfield. They conceded the midfield. So the question for me is always going to come back to how do we get our guys to win that game? Because we can't just have it be, and, and, and maybe Canada's just really good at it. Maybe other CONCACAF teams can't replicate what Canada did in that, in that game in Nashville. 
But the worry for me is that they can, is that they can sit in that block, just give us the ball, concede the midfield and say, what are you going to do about it with the ball? Yeah, I don't have a, I don't have a solution for that. <laughs> Honest, honestly, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a troubling reality. I do think Canada was good at it, but, but I also can't say that nobody else will be good at it either. Joe, can you solve this troubling reality? Can you be the bridge? No, and this ties it back all the way to my <laughs> like, kind of my opening statement for the show yeah. is I'm concerned, right? Because yep. how many times have we seen the Canada game play out in one form or another? Too many, right? Nations League, I think about that, the Honduras game, the semifinal. It took a late winner from Jordan Pifak to actually move the U.S. into the final of that tournament. And it had been a lot of the U.S. in possession, high up the field in the final third, or at least in the attacking half trying to break through Honduras's defensive block, and they really couldn't do that. And we saw some slightly different personnel against Canada, obviously, but it, it wasn't a lot better, and it hasn't. There, there have been so few moments of consistent quality attacking possession play in the opposition half against decent opposition, and, and by that I kind of just mean outside of a December or January camp in, in 2020 or in 2019. There just have been so few of those moments and that's a challenging place to be. And that's this is where I side with Bells. I'm not optimistic that those problems are going to be solved between now and the World Cup should the U.S. make it that far. And that's that's a problem. Then, like, I, I think where I, what I'm coming around to, and I was not expecting this, is the idea that maybe there needs to be less of an attacking game plan. And I, I, I'm, I'm throwing this out there as, like, like, sort of what I've stumbled upon, and I look forward to you all dunking on that one. Uh, but, like, like, the knock against Berhalter that I have heard fairly consistently is that he is trying to manage the national team as a club team and that with the with your club team, obviously, you have a ton of time to train and you're with them much more regularly. So you can sort of convey messages, convey specific instructions about what you need to do when this person is here and the ball is there. You make this run and then they make this run and you can just diagram a little bit more and go through those rotations and that repetition. You can't do that at international level when you have a, a day or two to train and get everybody together. It requires, I think, less instruction, but still a coherent game plan. And that's where I'm coming around to the idea that, like, do you want an attack for the U.S.? Do you all want an attack for the U.S. that is less regimented and structured and and based on the system and more based on the individuals and attempts to combine not necessarily just Pulisic dribbling everybody but if you have more of a everybody's going to try stuff but everybody's going to work off the ball to facilitate people trying stuff is that enough of an attack that we can sort of go with the improvisational part of it the unpredictable part of it but then still have because it's like planned for it to be unpredictable that that is in and of itself a plan well does that make sense because that's kind of where i am right now it, no i kind of get what you're saying taylor the, i don't think you solve the attacking problems though by you know taking away structure or, or taking away a game plan right i think one thing the brothers talked about before and i really do buy into this is that the reason why he and other coaches give players tactical instruction, it's not to bind them and to make and to restrict them. It's to give them a foundation to actually build upon on the field during the game. So he's not saying, hey, Weston McKinney, you can only stand in this six by six yard square on the field and you have to operate in that square. And if you move, you're you're going to be benched, right? He's not saying that, but he's saying, okay, if I'm you're confident here, that Weston McKinney is not staying in any sort of box that he's uh, told to stay in. Well played. Well played. It's not it's not intended to be restrictive. And if it is, there's a breakdown either in the coach's ability to explain or to visualize that idea or in the player's understanding of that idea. And I think that's what we're seeing right now is we're seeing some sort of breakdown between Baralther's brain and the player's feet and the player's movement. And I think solving that is a lot 
more important than just giving up on that. Like, I, I don't think giving up on that idea makes this team better. I think maybe changing the emphasis at times based on the opposition, that's important, right? And we've seen Baralter do that. Changing the emphasis in a, a final against Mexico away from the incredibly hyper-detailed possession play to, okay, we're going to be in a 4-3-3, we're going to press, we're going to win the ball, we're going to win the midfield, and then we're going to play forward quickly. We've seen that, and I think there are games that call for that sort of approach, but I I am a believer that tactical framework is important, and I don't think taking that away or even necessarily taking emphasis away from that is the best way to go about it. All right, so I'm advocating organized anarchy, and Joe is advocating <laughs> tactical responsibility. Uh, what about you all? Well, I, I'd even add that uh, that the idea that he was running it like a club and, and getting overly intricate and overly complex for me has kind of faded off. I think that was very much like a, a 2019 criticism that held. That was that was a good criticism in 2019. Uh, but we have basically moved to a, like a pretty symmetrical like four three three when we have the ball that morphs into either like a three two five or a, a two three five, uh, and and it's pretty uh, simple. Like it's not that complicated. It, it doesn't appear that there are these regimented movements that have to be taking place um it like my big thing is i I actually think there's just been an overemphasis on verticality and so you don't have you have players always sort of running vertical and not having small coordinated movements around the ball uh and that's where I, i i feel like it is solvable like i do think you can solve that and i don't think it has to be uh a year long process to get there. Like I, I'm very interested to see if we have more, uh, cohesive around the ball attacking small group play in the next window. And I think it's possible. So I'm not as, I'm not as doom and gloom as, as some of these other folks over here who have given up. Uh, all right. Then, then I think, I think what, what, what I've landed upon then is that we're advocating for, a symmetrical four three three with better movement, less emphasis on verticality, and a focus on small group play when it comes to the attack. Would that be the least cute thing that we could see that would make us very happy? I'd be thrilled with it. I feel like as soon as we get done with this call, we can draw up some some practice yep. sessions. We yep. can send them over to U.S. Mm-hmm. Soccer, and we're in business. I've already got three what? Rondo diagrams drawn up. <laughs> I've, I've emailed them to U.S. Soccer. I don't think they're going to respond, you know, Rondos and, and all that. I don't know. Everything I've heard uh, from Greg Berhalter tells me that he loves to be told about tactics, and he loves it especially when you use numbers to explain your thoughts on his tactics. That never doesn't always seem to bother him. So <laughs> I think we should definitely uh, do that. We are uh, going a little bit long, so I will jump to our final question for this one, and then I look forward to part two. But our final question, Bells, we will start with you for this one. I know that you love it when I throw right to you, so we're going to do that here. From Luke, uh, given the team's run of form, the number of remaining World Cup qualifiers and international windows before the World Cup, and only having a week to prepare for the World Cup itself, is it even possible for Burhalter to achieve his stated goal of changing the way the world views American soccer? Well, I'm sort of whipsawing back and forth on this question as the, as we're mm-hmm. recording this podcast. But real quick, what is a whipsaw? It sounds uh, cool. It does. Isn't that like maybe I'm using the wrong word? It's like I'm going back and forth. I'm going back and forth. What is like what that. literally is a whipsaw? I don't know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, is it a whip with like a saw on the end? Because if so, that is some Mad Max stuff that I'm into. I yeah, I'm I'm ashamed to admit I used a word I don't know the meaning of. Oh my man, so, I thought that was like a a local expression or something like that, or just a, a tool that you use often that I've never heard of. No, 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 no. I've never seen a whipsaw that I know of. But uh, I'm 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 going back and forth on this question. I, of course, it's possible. Um, I do. I do think, and I don't want to abs- absolve Burhalter. I don't want to give anybody the wrong idea. I 
I am not happy with Berhalter's performance as the head coach of the men's national team at the moment. I mean, I'm happy with how he did in the second half of Honduras, but like, it, I'm not that happy with him in general. However, I do. We've talked about this a little bit on our podcast. I do wonder if, like, we have the soccer culture in this country to 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 do the sort of instinctive off the ball movement that is required for a team at a very high level to play cohesive possession attacking soccer together. I mean, Greg and I have talked about this. I'm sure you guys have too. You watch Mexico play and it's just, it just feels natural. And actually it feels natural when you watch some of the Central American nations play when they do, you know, venture out to try to attack us. It's just kind of uh it's kind of ping, 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 ping. It all feels like something they've done a million times before. I don't, I don't get that sense with our American players as as much money as Chelsea is willing to pay for Christian Pulisic. I do not think he is good at moving off the ball in the attack, like in tight triangles or seeing players move off the ball and playing the simple pass to them to sort of ting, ting, ting through the other team. I don't, I think the same criticism can be leveled at Gio Reyna. I, I think, uh, I don't, I don't know that we have that sort of deep gut culture of beautiful possession soccer in our player pool, even though there is, you know, a lot of talent and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get destroyed for this on Twitter, but whatever. <laughs> well, it's a different, it's a different kind of talent, right? Yeah. So, exactly. so Reina, you're not, you don't even have to say Reina and Pulisic aren't talented players. You're saying you could say that they are, they're talented in a way that might not like strengthen or, or be as conducive to this particular style of soccer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, the, the example we gave on the, on our podcast is you watch, uh, you watch like the, the left back from Mexico, whose name is escaping me at the moment, but he's, he's a good attacking left back. You watch him. He's making a run like two passes before the pass that comes to him. And he's doing it with absolute conviction up the left side. And uh, I mean, Anthony Robinson makes similar runs too, but somehow it just sort of like the passes are all in stride. There's like, as Arsene Winger would say, uh, like uh, an empathy to the passes as they're going from player to player. And it's just, it, there's just something very harmonious and natural about it. And I don't see that with our player pool. I I'm, I will be happy to be proven wrong on that, but I don't see it right now. I mean, I think it goes, in, in my opinion, it goes what you're talking about to the age old idea of Americans don't watch enough soccer. And when we do, we don't watch it in the right way. That's the thing I was told a lot in my life that you have to watch soccer, but you also have to watch it not just for what's happening and who's doing what, but why are they doing it? And that's where, uh, like for me, watching Jamie Vardy and the way he would make runs and start on one side and then drift to the other, like it showed me how you can create space via movement. And like that's not a thing that I really, it took me until my adulthood to sort of watch players to see how they like overload one side or they'll sort of switch between center backs to see which one is maybe less adept in 1v1s and then they'll go with that person. And I I do think that there is maybe a lack of critical thinking when it comes to how we watch soccer across the board. And I think that starts at a really young age. So, Bells, I take your point that I think you have to kind of be like steeped in that from a very young age. And if you're not, then it's something that you can pick up later in life, but you're not going to be as fluent. To me, it's it's not that dissimilar from why younger people can learn languages faster, that your brains are just sort of, sort of more open and, and more willing to embrace new ideas the older you get, the less so. So hmm. I think that is a thing that as we get more kids coming through and playing at a really high level, we will start to see that sort of automatic recognition and adaptation. But for now, I think it is probably an issue to spotlight for sure. I think 
to to shine a light back on this question to give my perspective at least. I I think we may have already answered it individually over the course of this conversation because Berhalter's thing here when talking about changing the the way the world views American soccer, which he's talked about since taking over this job, I think he's talking about that possession play that we've already discussed, right? I think that's that's what he sees as the thing that's lacking in U.S. soccer right now on the men's side, at least. And and that's what he wants to change to elevate the world's perception of this team. If it, if I'm misreading that and if it's about the talent in the player pool or if it's about the culture or whatever, I think those things are changing and, and certainly have changed since he's taken over. But I think we've already talked about this. I – and I think Bells is with me on this. Don't feel like it's especially likely that we're going to see much improved possession play. And Greg, I know, is on the other side of that spectrum. So we, I, as far as I'm aware, unless there's a lot more nuance here that I'm just missing – I'm of the view that it's not likely he's going to change his his definition of the way the world views American soccer between now and in 2022. I'll I'll take a I'll take the approach where it's almost going to be like a Don Draper Michael Ginsburg situation where I I think the world's going to say we don't view American soccer like yep. we, we don't think about you <laughs> <Agreed>. so <laughs> so it's it's it might be impossible in that context but uh I I again I genuinely think it is possible to sort of at least improve on this riddle of possession and, and making it look coherent and cohesive. I don't know if Berhalter will be able to do it. I don't know if he's the guy to do it, but I think, I think it's, it's not, it's not beyond, uh, the, the reach of our players, despite some of these, uh, um, obstacles, we'll call them. I thought you were going a different way with that because my answer to this <laughs> question really is that, like, we're talking about how we think the world views American soccer and like, can we change it to a more possession style system? Like, I, I think you're right. I think the world doesn't really think about American soccer aside from maybe Pulisic, maybe Reyna, maybe a few of the bigger names. And then like, ah, oh, yeah, there's major league soccer, but I don't think there's a ton of awareness or understanding. So I think to like the specifics of the question. Yeah, if they made a quarterfinal run or a semifinal run, that changes the way the world views American soccer because suddenly, oh, they made a run. And if there's some good goal scored or some good combination plays along the way, I think it automatically raises the profile of the team and thus U.S. soccer. So I think, if anything, there's kind of a low bar there, especially given the failure to qualify in 2018. And we make it out of the group in 2014, but get destroyed by Belgium, except for Tim Howard doing Tim Howard things. So I think there's plenty of room for U.S. soccer to sort of have a good string of results, make it a little bit further than they tend to do, and then suddenly people think American soccer, the best in the world. That last part might be a bit of an exaggeration. (laughs) There we are. All right, then we're all on the same page. I'm glad that I've convinced everybody, including my small dog who is barking to be let out, which feels like a good point to end this conversation, to end this part one of the conversation, I should say. Uh, Before we move over to part two on the Scuffed podcast, uh, Joe Lowry, thank you very much for taking all of the time to talk these things out with me and our guests today. You got it, Taylor. Bells, thank you very much for being here. It's good to have you on the show again. Thanks for having us, Taylor. And Greg... Very nice to chat with you. Very nice to have you on the show. And I look forward to uh, getting to it a bit more in part two when I can take off the the hosting cap and put on the uh, meta personal attack cap. Uh, I'm excited to go back and forth on that one. But Greg, thank you for being here. Thank you. It was great to actually make my debut. Yeah, I like it. It was a, it was a, it was a, a Ricardo Pepe esque performance on your debut. So thank you for that, listeners. Thank you all very much for listening, and we will talk to you all again very soon. 